everyone, and welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I'm so glad you're tuning in today as we continue our series on Revelation. And today's episode two, and we have quite a bit to cover. So I'm going to go ahead and get started by reading chapter one of this letter. Chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like that, like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. That is quite a start. What an opening chapter for this incredible book. And because it contains so much information, we are going to have to break some of this information down. And so I'm going to try to do it into three parts. 
We're going to talk about apocalyptic scripture. We're going to talk about John and his exile on Patmos. And we're also going to be bringing in history so that you understand the context in time and space in which this letter was written. You see, it's no secret, my friends, that when you read the revelation of Jesus Christ, I think we've all discovered this, we realize it is a very confusing and oftentimes puzzling book, right? It captures the present, as you'll see when we go through the seven letters to the seven churches, but he's referencing so much about the future, and it looks forward right to the end of time altogether. And so some of these future predictions can leave us quite confused. And over the century, centuries actually, many people have tried to sort these future predictions out, and they still do that today. And yet we're still left without all the answers, but that's okay. You see, the revelation of Jesus Christ is what we call an apocalyptic book. It's still prophecy, but a different kind of prophecy. It's a prophecy that is more in pictures than it is in words, like, say, Jeremiah or Isaiah. It's more in visions than it is in a verbal form and more for the eye at times than it is for our ear. And so apocalyptic books, because they're written that way, they're filled with all kinds of symbolism. And they can have some pretty weird pictures in them. And we also notice that animals will play a large part in apocalyptic prophecy. And not to mention the fact, angels come into the picture, which they don't normally. And there are angels in apocalyptic prophecy that show people pictures and then explain the pictures to them. Such as in the book of Revelation, actually, they take on more of an action role And you even have an an angel near the end of Revelation that comes down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit, and it's an angel who lays hold of the dragon, the devil, bounding him up for a thousand years. It's pretty fascinating. And in your Bible, Revelation isn't the only book that has apocalyptic prophecy. You can find it in the last half of Daniel, or you find it in the prophet Zechariah, and even the prophet Ezekiel, which is why I believe probably those two prophets are the least read by a lot of Christians because they're difficult, kind of like Revelation. Ezekiel, for example, I've been reading Ezekiel. He sees a vision while he's exiled in Babylon of this large cloud coming near him and it's consumed by fire and it has these four living creatures and these large wheels and eyes within the wheels and around the wheels and so on and so forth. And so someone can read that and, and get a little confused and puzzled and not quite sure where to go with it. And you see this type of prophecy, it comes in a strange form because it's very difficult to imagine the distant future, which is what those other books also contain prophecy about the distant future. We can imagine a future perhaps a few years from now, right? I mean, we have an idea, but looking way into the end of time is a whole different matter altogether. I mean, imagine trying to explain to someone even a thousand years ago what a smartphone is or what social media is. We would have to sit out and draw it and use pictures and symbols to explain it, right? 
So we're dealing in Revelation with a very different kind of prophecy. And let me take a moment also to explain some of the symbolism you're going to come across because we just experienced this when we read chapter one. There's going to be symbolism that's obvious. It's going to require very little explanation. And we saw a picture of this when John heard the sound of a trumpet behind him and turned to see who was speaking. And whoa, it's his friend Jesus. Only now his friend Jesus is in a glorified state. And John is so overcome by his appearance that he falls as though dead before him. He sees him in a different way than he had seen him before. It's not the Jesus we see in paintings today, my friends. No one is painting Jesus as described in Revelation chapter 1, where he has white hair as white as snow, where his countenance is like the sun shining in all of its strength, where his eyes are burning with fire, anger, right? John has rarely seen Jesus like this. And he's dressed in a long white robe with a golden band girded around his chest and his feet are like a burnished bronze right out of the furnace. I mean, it's quite an awesome picture. But do you realize the significance of it? Any Roman at this period of time would tell you it's the picture of a senior Roman judge. The sash, everything, says judge. Because he is the judge of all evil. And that's who he is in the book of Revelation. He is judges all evil as well as he is savior from all sin. And so you get a different view of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Then you have explained symbolism, which we experienced in chapter one. Jesus talks about seven stars that are in his hand and seven golden lampstands. And he says that the seven stars are angels of the seven churches. And seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's explained. There's an angel assigned to each of those churches. And I believe, my friends, more than likely, there's an angel assigned to every church on the earth. And notice where Jesus is in this vision before I move on to the next symbolism. He's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, meaning he's in the midst of his churches. He sees them. He knows what's going on with them, good or bad. He knows what's going on in their cities too, as we'll see when we go through those letters. So it's explained. It's explained symbolism. Next is something called parallel symbolism. And this is symbolism that's found in other parts of the Bible. In fact, there's around 400 images and symbolic references to things from the Old Testament. So it's so important that we read our Old Testament so that we are able to understand the book of Revelation. And lastly, there is the obscure. And for example, that's when people talk about things and we still don't have the explanation for it, such as a white stone. Is it a declaration of innocence? Is it a sign of approval? Is it a badge of excellence? We just don't know. And we'll have to lay down our need to understand some things for now. The other thing that's important As you read this book, and we touched upon it in chapters one, our numbers are also significant. We saw that there are seven lampstands, right? And that there were these seven uh, stars. Seven, there are many sevens in the book of Revelation, from the stars to the lampstands, but also seals and trumpets and bowls. And it's a number that represents completion or perfection. 
And 12 is also mentioned, you're going to see, because that's associated also with the people of God, such as with tribes or apostles. This 666 captures our attention. I think that's the number that probably captures most people's attention. Whereas in, we need to really be focusing on these smaller numbers. But the 666, it's three sixes, six being a figure which points to humans or human ability. While sevens reach complete perfection, sixes point to human failure. And so there's different schools of interpretation also as we go through the apocalyptic prophecy, the symbolism, the numbers. But it's really important, my friends, that you understand the different schools of thought. Nearly a third of this book contains a prediction, most of them occurring after chapter four. And that brings in a lot of different opinions. Do you remember in episode one, I said to know who it is that you sit under, whose teachings you're listening to or reading from? What is their school of thought? Because they more than likely take one of these four positions that I'm about to read as it pertains to Revelation. Number one, you have a preterist view, and I'm going to keep these very basic because we are going to be touching on them in subsequent podcasts. So I'm not going to go into a huge explanation here, but just enough to give you an idea. But number one is a a preterist. And what a preterist is, is it says that these predictions in Revelation were fulfilled already during the decline of the Roman Empire, when church was under that pressure. Well, the weakness on this is that very few, if any of the predictions, actually came true in the Roman Empire. Then you have a historicist point of view, where they believe that the predictions cover the entire church age between the first and second coming of Christ. So every letter to one of these churches represents a different age of the church over the last 2,000 years. A futurist believes, that's the third one, that the main block of predictions apply to the last few years leading up to the second coming of Christ, such as the climax of evil in the world leading to the great tribulation. Well, since events are still future, the predictions tend to be taken more literally. But the weakness in this, and we touched upon it in episode one, is that oftentimes people who adhere to this in a strict way really only treat revelation as a schedule for future events and not as anything else. And then lastly, you have an idealist. And this approach removes all specific time references altogether and believes the struggle between good and evil can occur at any century, making it directly relevant to all who read it. However, then it assumes that revelation is a myth. So we'll touch upon those things often throughout the series, but I just wanted to give you some things to think about because we read quite a substantial amount of information just in chapter one that I think really stimulates our thinking. So let's move on to John. And so for John, who has been given the responsibility of recording what he sees and then sending them to the seven churches, he has to try to explain what he sees to the reader and the hearer of this message. That's his assignment. Can you imagine that for just a moment? With all the symbolism, with all of the imagery that he is going to encounter, trying to put that to words in letter form for someone else to understand. 
Therefore, this record of events is not going to sound like some of his other writings. If you like John, his style from the Gospels, it's not going to sound like the Gospel of John. And you're also going to see a very different Jesus than what you see in the Gospel of John. He is not Jesus meek and mild as depicted in the Gospels. And people struggle with that. They struggle with revelation because they experience a different Jesus. You see, my friends, this is really important to know if I can just do a side note for a second. Jesus fulfills every office of leadership that was depicted in the Old Testament. Let me explain. At different times in history, after the times of the patriarchs, Israel was led by either a prophet, a king or prince, or a priest. At the time of Jesus, the priesthood was the ruling power over the nation of Israel. They were the last group. Well, Jesus, when he came, became the fulfillment of all those things. He is a prophet, he is our high priest, and he is a king. And it's so important that we have a healthy view of who he is in the book of Revelation. We can't just always teach the Jesus of the Gospels. We have to make sure we are giving the full picture of who Jesus is all the way through to the end of the age. He's not just the prophet, priest, and king either. He's a judge, the final judge for all mankind. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. That is why he is dressed the way he is dressed. We will have a righteous judicial system one day, my friends. Thank the Lord. And it'll last for all of eternity. Because you see, we're going to be discussing sections of this letter that are filled with judgment. But when we do, my prayer is that I hope you will see his righteousness in those judgments. Now, something else I think is important to just note, because we experienced it a little bit in chapter one. I'm not sure if you even caught it, but sometimes it can appear as if we're reading sentences almost in fragments, like it'll skip from one thought to the next. Well, in the original manuscripts, there were a lot of sentences that were fragments, almost like they're written in shorthand. They weren't finished. Translators cleaned them up so that we could easily understand them. But sometimes it's, it's as if John was writing in haste and trying to quickly get on to the next topic. There's even places in the book where it appears he stops writing because he's reminded, keep writing. Perhaps at times, I, I like to think, maybe in those moments, sometimes when you're trying to explain something, when you're, when you're, having, when you're trying to explain something that you really can't even understand what you're seeing, you're caught up in the awe and wonder of it. And so I would imagine that writing Revelation was not an easy task. But needless to say, I just wanted to point those things out. Because then John begins to describe in chapter 1 his situation. He has found himself as a prisoner on the island of Patmos in Greece for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with that, with Patmos. How did he find himself exiled on this island? And what, what is this island like? Well, keep in mind, John was living in Ephesus. If you remember at the crucifixion, Jesus put Mary, his mother, into the care of John. 
and they ultimately moved to Ephesus. And Ephesus, as we shared earlier, is in southwest Turkey. And if you visit Ephesus today, they will point out some pretty interesting things. They will point out the ruins of the Church of St. John, and they will also point out the ruins of the grave of Mary. And it's 99% certain that this is where John, the apostle after Mary's death, himself died. You know, he was the only apostle to die naturally. All the others were put to death. Well, now during this time that John lived in Ephesus, there was an evil Roman emperor named Domitian, and I may be mispronouncing his name, so forgive me. And he reigned from 81 AD to 96 AD, and he was the son of Emperor Vespasian and the brother of Titus. And they were the conquerors of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. While Domitian was known to be a ruthless ruler who detested Christians, and he punished them severely for worshiping the God of heaven, the God of Israel. Well, during the days of emperors, they were usually deified after their death. And so therefore, numerous temples in their honor had sprung up around the empire. That's why you would see so many ruins of that today. But Domitian didn't wait until he was dead to be revered. So while he was alive, he declared he was God, but not just any God. He declared himself, quote, Lord and God. And it was a move that really provided new grounds for him to exert his power. And to keep his image in the public eye, he had statues built all over the empire and then commanded the people to bow to it. It sounds pretty similar to King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Who commanded the people of Babylon to bow to his statue. Domitian was obsessed with his power, and so therefore he enforced the worship of himself. And if you refused this worship, it was seen as political defiance. Well, one of the places favored by him to erect a statue and temple in his name and demand worship was Ephesus. Remember how important Ephesus was as we touched upon in episode one. We're going to get it in more detail when we go into the letter to the Ephesians. But Ephesus was an important hub for people around the world to pass. Remember, this was a, a very popular place because of the two different routes you can take for trade that took you either into Asia, India, or China, or down into the continent of Africa. And for Christians living in Ephesus in John's day, these images, these temples, all of these things symbolized a choice they had to make. They had to choose whether or not to pay homage and revere and bow down to these statues and these images and live or face death or persecution. And so it was during this time of this type of heavy persecution from Domitian towards Christians that John was exiled on the island of Patmos where he ultimately received the apocalyptic revelation we know today as the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Patmos is a rocky island, and I, I kind of picture Alcatraz when I picture Patmos. I know it's not like that. Um, it's quite touristy today. But it's roughly eight miles long from north to south, and at its widest is six miles wide east to west. And today, if you were to go over there, the very first thing you would notice on Patmos is the Monastery of St. John looks like a big castle, like a big fortress. But you also have the chapel of St. Anne, 
which was actually built on top of and completely encloses what's known as the Cave of the Apocalypse, where it's believed to be where John wrote his letter. Well, now there is a church over that. So that's interesting. Anyway, during the Roman Empire, it was known uh, Patmos was part of this group of islands, these remote islands, that were used for banishing or exiling people who were somehow considered threats to the empire. They became prison colonies. And this is where John found himself as a prisoner. And essentially, at this period of time, it was a rock quarry. So John, as a prisoner, and other prisoners who were chained, most likely spent their days chipping away at granite, shaping blocks used for buildings. Can you imagine that being your life? Well, this was John's life of exile, more or less. But why was he exiled? Well, he was exiled for his opposition to emperor worship because he continued to preach the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John would not declare Caesar as Lord. He stood for the truth of the word of God, and he testified of Jesus. And while he's there, he experiences a vision And this vision comes on a specific day called the Lord's Day. And this is not something to get hung up on, but for some reason people do. So I'm just going to touch upon it. When you hear the Lord's Day, it causes many people to assume that this vision came on a, quote, Sunday. Well, considering that this word choice that they used in the Greek for the Lord's Day is an adjective, scholars believe that this is actually a, quote, type of day rather than the name of a day, like a Sunday. In the New Testament, friends, Sunday is never called the Lord's Day. It's referred to as the first day of the week because that's what it was. Sabbath was the seventh day, came on a Saturday, which made Sunday the first day of the week. So if it's not a specific day of the week, then what type of day would this be referring to? Well, Emperor Domitian established a day of worship for himself, to himself, and he called it the Lord's Day. And this was a special day once a year because he considered himself Lord and God. So some scholars have suggested that it's meaning to be that while the rest of the Roman Empire was declaring Domitian as Lord on the Lord's Day, John happened to go into the spirit on that day and received a vision from the true Lord in God. It's an interesting thought, and I'll let you dig into it further. So he goes into the spirit on the Lord's day and has this really incredible vision. And we're going to see this vision unfold over the weeks and months ahead. Now, it's important for you to understand what was happening to the Christians at this time. And why this vision was so important to come right now. You see, Southwest Turkey was suddenly a very dangerous place for the rapidly growing Christian communities. Believers had to be willing to call Caesar Lord and God or risk death. Not only that, they had to participate in activities designed to acknowledge the emperor as divine. Before people could even enter a city, they had to offer incense honoring him as God. The emperors claimed not only these titles demanding worship, but rights as well. Everyone had to obey 
what the emperor demanded. Because the emperor, they were considered gods. So whether this was your taxes, or if they wanted to confiscate your property, or anything else, they were, quote, God, little g. And so for Christians, there was no escaping. You either bow the knee to them, or risk your life or livelihood. Your denial meant being either cut off from society, your job, or many other things with little to no way of survival. And that's what this first century church was up against. And it sounds a little bit like what's supposed to happen at the time of the Antichrist, doesn't it? With the number of the beast, where people cannot buy in the market or conduct their business without acknowledging the authority of the emperor in the city in which they lived. And that'll be the case with the beast, the Antichrist. The Antichrist. These people could not walk through the city without stopping at his altars to acknowledge his lordship. They couldn't travel because every town they came to demanded allegiance to the divine emperor. They even prohibited access to the public fountains, which were the source for drinking water. And so before drawing water, they must acknowledge the emperor's provider of life itself. Do you see what was happening to them in every area of society and life? Do you get a little bit of a glimpse at the early church under the Roman Empire? And why it was critical for Jesus to get this letter into the hands of these little churches. He's in the midst of these churches and he wants them to know something. See, this generation needed to make it in order to pass the torch to the second and third generation of believers. The first century church was entering into great suffering and persecution. The vast power of the greatest empire of the world had ever known was pushing down hard on the early church. No one could resist the sword for very long. Believers, my friends, are not, they were not much different than you and me. They were ordinary, everyday people with little influence on such a powerful government. Nero was known to burn Christians alive and use them as lights for his own banquets and even lit the streets with them. Both male and female Christians who had been arrested would be raped and thousands sent to the arena to be torn to pieces in front of enormous crowds, setting the standard for the treatment of the followers of Jesus. Read the book of Revelation, my friends, in light of this, in light of these conditions, and you will see why this is a manual for martyrdom. You will see how evil things got and how evil they were at the time how evil the Roman Empire was at the time and the tremendous suffering believers were already facing. And that's what sets the stage for us as we begin to go into these churches to better understand these letters and the overall message of Revelation. Because it is still a message for us today. One day, my friends, a figure of authority like a Domitian, like a Pharaoh from Egypt, will one day reveal himself to the world and expect us to bow down and worship him. And if we don't, it could very well cost us our freedoms, our jobs, and our very lives. Are you ready for that? Thinking over the epistles in the New Testament written at the same time, written for first century believers and those coming after, all of these messages, the epistles and the book of Revelation still apply for us today. The vision given in the book of Revelation would have given hope and courage to those suffering for their faith. 
It showed that despite their current suffering, God was, and still is, 100% in control of the situation. As we see in the letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ, why it's titled that? Because the script is about to be flipped, and God is about to make his move. God bless you all today. Thank you for joining us for part two. We look forward to the next time we're together. Take care. Thank you.